Welcome to Life's a Beach. I'm Bruce Hopkins, better known as Hoppo from Bondi Rescue. Each week I'll be sharing some stories, the good, the bad and everything in between. I'll be chatting to guests about their life experiences and giving our listeners an insight to the challenges we have faced in our lives. We'll share a few jokes and some banter along the way and hopefully our experiences will resonate with you. As the saying goes, while life's a beach, it can also be a bitch. Hey everyone, this week on Life's a Beach, we have an absolute ocean paddling legend in the beach shack and he will tell all his stories from over the years and his paddling adventures. Dean Gardner has won nine times the Molokai Ocean Ski Race. He's held the record for over 20 years, which only just recently got beaten. Now let's sit back and listen to Dino's stories. Yeah, this week in the Beach Shack, it's a pleasure to have him. I've been paddling with him for a while, and he's a legend of ocean paddling, and he's been around a long, long time. So welcome, Dino, to the Beach Shack. Great to be here, Hoppo. Thanks for having me. Well, mate, you were over in Perth when you grew up. Were you born over there? Yeah, so I was born here in WA, and I spent probably the, well, until my early teens in Perth, pretty much, and then uh, went on a fishing boat to the Gulf Carpentaria, and when I was 16 and and sort of started a fishing career, golf cup, Terrier, then down in a, a town called Exmouth, which is where the uh, famous Ningaloo Reef is. So I was fishing there for about five or six years and I sort of would do the the summer seasons up there, uh, sorry, the winter seasons up there, then come back to Perth for the summer and work as a lifeguard. And that's kind of how I got into ski paddling. So Perth in summer doesn't really have a lot of surf. So I sort of converted from surfing into paddling. Yeah, it's uh, it's a good place to paddle. You know, you get your um, your crisp offshores in the morning, and then your your howling sea breeze in the afternoon. So it's kind of two days in one over here. <laughs> Growing up, did you do other sports as well, or it was mainly just you know in, into the, uh, the the surfing and the paddling? Yeah, so I did. Uh, when I was growing up, it was it was surfing and AFL. You know, that was pretty much the sports that existed here. There was, I used to look at the, the rugby posts and think, what are they for? There was a fair bit, of, <laughs> fair bit of soccer going on, but the rugby codes were very small. And, you know, the legends of the day were the guys that could kick a footy really well and, and surf really well. So they were sort of the idols, you know, when I was a kid for those sorts of people. And I got into the clubby stuff a little bit later on than most. Then I had my own idols out of that group as well. So, but yeah, fantastic. You know, I enjoyed the, the winter playing footy and and surfing and and then uh, the summer doing uh, some paddling stuff and and surf life saving stuff and and surfing and per, you know Western Australia is a, a very very unique place in that you can go north and and go to the desert regions and and surf the desert regions and just a few hours south of here you've got you know classic cold water big waves and and uh, unbelievable beaches so it. It's such a diverse place to live. And with the fishing, you, you became a professional fisherman. And is that something you enjoyed or you just fell into it? I definitely enjoyed it. I knew I wanted to do some sort of work on the ocean. Initially at school, when I was enthusiastic at school, my desire was to become a marine biologist. But 
I realized I wasn't smart enough for that and nor did I want to spend the time that that required to get to a certain level and and uh, of doing that sort of thing and I guess it was it was more the field work in that in that field that interested me m- most so I just thought fuck it I'll just go to the field work. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I don't need to and, and, study <laughs> was it um like a tough environment back in those days so out in the boats and you know I can imagine the fishermen I know they're pretty uh, rough and rugged yeah, it was, you know, uh, the, the golf cup and terrier was, was, I was 16 when I was up there. So, and I look at my son today, who's just turned 17. I think that I was pretty young to be in that environment. And there were some, it was a sort of place where uh, a lot of people were trying to hide from something. So there was that element of, of rough nut up there. And, and, uh, but you know, there was some very, very genuine, nice people too. So it was it was pretty good, but when I moved from the Gulf down to Exmouth, I really enjoyed the life a lot more because we weren't on the boat the whole time. They were more one day, two day trips, sometimes a four day trip, and in we fished at night, so you had the days clear, and and we'd pull up at some islands offshore there and and go surfing, and and uh, I really enjoyed that lifestyle. It was tough though because you don't sleep much and. Um, you're kind of in an environment that is is quite quite tough. So not sleeping and doing a lot of physical work sort of wear you down as well. So did you think, looking back in hindsight, you think that experience helped you in life as you got older? I think being in that environment gave me a very good work ethic because you had to work. Uh, and uh, if you didn't work, the job didn't get done. So I've always sort of used that. A philosophy with everything I've done. If you don't work, you you don't get the job done. So you you don't get the rewards. So and I think that applies to sport as well. So yeah. So you know, so being in that environment was was definitely good like that. I, I don't think I could have stayed in that. There were a lot of drugs and things like that going around at the time, and I think possibly it was sort of could have been a considered quite a dangerous environment for a, a late teenager. So. But, you know, I'm glad I experienced it. I'm really glad I experienced it. And I was always sort of, being in Exmouth, I was always sort of reasonably close to Perth as well. So it, uh, if I needed to, I could always get back, back down here. So it wasn't really a problem. So it was good. So then tell us a bit about then when um, you were surfing and then your first experience of ski paddling. Yeah, so I grew up surfing at Scarborough in, in Perth and then my next-door neighbour kind of convinced me to go down to a surf club called Floriot. And so I went down there. I was probably about um, 13 or 14 maybe and it wasn't a, a very strong club from a competitive perspective but it was a very good social club and a lot of the people that I played footy with in, in my area, were a member of that club, and and so it was very social. It was good. We had a, a great environment. And from there, you know, during summer, if I wasn't at Scarborough, I'd be down at Floriot, and we started using the skis, and the, they'd, they had some old males down there that would paddle and just mess around at the beach. And then I sort of got into a little bit more where I'd paddle, you know, maybe up to Scarborough from Floriot and or up to Swanbourne or one of the places, you know, maybe three or four K up the road and just sort of kind of, well, they're kind of adventures really rather than training or anything. So uh, we'd go out to a fishing line, catch a herring or something like that as well. And 
And, uh, yeah, so it was just good fun. You know, I'd spend a summer doing that and go back to school. And then I got into the fishing industry. And, and uh, coming back in summer, I started doing the competitions a little bit more. And I moved to a, a stronger competitive pub at City of Perth. And they had a very good program in place under the guidance of Rick Turner from a training perspective. And, and I took on took on sort of his philosophy with regards to training. He was a, he was a very good swimming coach and um, I pretty well applied his swimming sessions to ski paddling because at the time I was just doing the surf lifesaving surf club races, which were roughly, say, two and a half, three minutes long, which I think, you know, was equivalent to a 200 or 400 metre swimmer, which he was very, very good at coaching. So just put the same philosophy behind that into paddling and, and do the same sessions that he was doing in the pool. So, and that seemed to work. And I, I trained by myself a lot, you know, in the afternoon you just punch up into the wind and do runs back or you get dropped up the coast. And in the morning, because it's offshore, it's actually really, really flat here. So you just do your flat water stuff on the sea. So it was pretty cool. And then back up, back up North for the winter. So how many years did you do that up North doing the fishing and then coming back to, you know, doing some paddling and, so I started when I was 16 and then I probably wrapped that up when I was 22. And the year after that, I moved to Sydney. So by that time, I'd gotten a little bit better on the ski and made the, the state teams here and, and things like that for surf lifesaving. And so, yeah, and then I spoke to the guys at, at Manly, you know, Greg Bennett and Steve Wood at the time and, and another mate of mine that was living in Perth who was from Manly, Lee Horwood, uh, we sort of moved back to Sydney together and that was at the end of, yeah, I think around 1988. So, And then I, I probably got more into the paddling stuff when I was in Sydney. And and from there, obviously, you said you joined Manly Surf Club, started racing in the surf lifesaving, but do you put it back to those early days of downwinders in Perth that you got your skill, the base of, of how you paddle? I think there's there's definitely some some truth in that, most definitely because you were out in the wind every afternoon. So, you know, if you couldn't ride choppy, you couldn't win a race. So it was as simple as that. We had we had guys that were very very good flat water paddlers at a surf carnival that would do very well in the early heats, but by the time the final came around, the the sea breeze was in, and you'd see a completely different bunch of people at the front you know the guys that could surf the chop so yeah you know you as i said you couldn't win a race unless you could ride chop so and but that was the most enjoyable part of it too uh as we all know the downwind stuff is the stuff that we all like to do and 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 you know perth is the, from a capital city perspective there's no better place in the world that i know of that that has the ability to pretty well do that every afternoon and what was the reason to move to uh, Sydney? Was it because of the paddling mainly or, or work? Yeah, so I'd, I'd sort of made the decision because the fishing industry at the time was in a in a real slump. Like the areas had been overfished and there was too many boats fishing certain areas. So they were starting to implement management programs that were, were cutting back the boats. So there wasn't a great deal of money in, in being a fisherman. It was, it was more the lifestyle and, and the fact that I was in a remote region and I could do all the, the things that I really like to do. And I just, I love the sea. I love, I love the creatures that live in it. I love all that stuff. So 
and I got to see all of that firsthand, which was which was pretty amazing. But I couldn't. Con- I knew I couldn't continue that lifestyle because it would kill me. And I wanted to do sport. I wanted to try and be the best I could at something. I could be at something. So I realised that the paddling was probably my best option there. So I I got more and more into it. And Manly was an obvious choice for me because I had some some friends there already, and and I just really really liked the area too. So. Uh, going over there was great. It was probably one of the the best moves I made. I initially thought that I'd, I would go for for five years and then come back to WA, but I've been there ever since. And uh, it was funny actually. The night I the night I I'd sort of had in the back of my, my mind that I was moving to the east, and I was out at the Cottesloe Beer Garden one night with a few friends, and I had a few drinks, and I said I'm going to go to Sydney tonight. I got home, borrowed three hundred dollars off Mum for a standby ticket. You could buy standby tickets back then, and got on a plane that night, and I was in Sydney the next day. So, uh, and I've been there ever since. So, yeah, but you know, I'm very lucky with with my stuff with Ocean Paddler and, and two years of COVID. But I do now, and and with this event, the Doctor event, and WA Race Week, the Strong Partners WA Race Week coming up in the next couple of weeks, um, I'll get to see you know, all my friends again in Perth and it's, it's pretty neat. And I, I just love being here. I love the climate. I love everything about WA. Well, mate, with the uh, joining Manly, you've joined probably in an era that had some of the best paddlers and, and Ironmen at, the, at that time. And you would have been in some really good teams in, in that era. Yeah. Yeah. It was, that was one of the reasons too, is, is when you're doing clubby stuff for those that, have never been involved in surf life saving. It's uh, your personal stuff well, your individual race as well, but it's even better when you get to team up in, in the ski relays and the double ski and, and the taplin relays with club mates and, and win those things as well. So it, it's pretty special. And during that time, Manly was winning the point score at Nationals too. So that was a very, very special time for the club. We had all the best swimmers, all, as you said, all the best Ironman, all the best, well, not all the best ski paddlers, but a, a large bunch of them. And and just going to training every day was was like racing every day. You'd turn up at training and you'd have all the top Ironmen on the line, all the top ski paddlers from the area, area. Not only Manly, but a lot of the other clubs used to train with us as well. So even the North Bondi guys used to come over and train with us sometimes. So it was um, it was pretty full on. It was really good. And then when did you start the longer distance racing? Because there wasn't a lot around back then. When it was mainly just you had to be in the surf club to paddle skis and. When did you discover some longer races? Yes, yeah, so I'd done a few over here. They'd run a couple in WA, one two rot nest when I was about fifteen, and the Avon descent, which is quite a famous river race, and and things like that. So I'd done a few distance races, but you're right there were there were no real there was no real program of of ocean racing like there is now. And but it was kind of I was still in WA at the time, and and. Uh, Grant Kenny had won the Molokai race and some, somehow that filtered down to me in WA. You know, this was well before internet and all that sort of stuff. So, and I thought, you know, wow, that, that really grabs me. The fact that you paddle from one island to, a, to another is, is kind of what is very, very attractive about our sport is doing those crossings and, and being out in the environment. And, and a lot of our races are not about, the people around you they're about how you effectively use the water so which kind of interests me as well because by that time I knew I was not too bad at riding chop you know I always found that I could 
if I was at the back of a ski race, I could always come through and get to the front of the ski race by the time we hit the shore. So I knew that I had that skill to be able to do that. So uh, yeah, what Grant had done over there sort of really, really inspired me. And, and I pretty well went to Sydney and that next year I was doing Molokai and I've pretty well done it ever since. So, And I mean, you had a lot of success over there. I think you, what, you won nine Molokais, I think. So you've had plenty of success and, what do you think uh, that's from, the, the success in uh, the long distance? Do you find your paddle better the longer it is or than what the, you know, generally it's a sprint race? Yes, and no, I find that I'm – I think I'm lazy. <laughs> so I try and find <laughs> the easiest way to cover the distance and uh, maybe that's why I just got better in the runs because I realised that if I turned the boats slightly to the left, I – wouldn't have to paddle so <laughs> i guess um i guess that's one thing but uh but i loved the sprint racing when i was doing it i really enjoyed it and i had a, a fair amount of success in that as well so endurance and i don't mind hurting myself over an extended period of time and i think that might come from the fishing days where you're up all night you know carrying prawns around and, and lifting stuff and and you didn't sleep much so you're always tired so the tired and, and hungry and thirsty stuff never really bothers me too much. I think I can get through that pretty well. So, And then obviously a Molokai that has a nice east wind blowing, you know, up to 20 knots is just a, a fantastic environment to be in. And you're not thinking about finish line. You're constantly thinking about the next run to catch. And if that was a flat water race, you, you, you're thinking about the finish line. So just being open to clear about catching the runs and not filling it with with other rubbish and worrying about people around you well mate i, I wish i could get lazy and uh catch the runs like you do because i'm flogging myself every time you come come up near me and then you just keep going I, I get some great runs and then you just you just keep going and pull away so i need to learn a bit more <laughs> yeah but it takes just a little bit of time Papa. you're going pretty well mate. <laughs> mate who do you think would was your toughest competitor in the molokai yeah, so over the years, a lot of people have compared Oscar and I as as the rivals in Molokai, and that that has been the case at quite a few of them. But over over quite a number of years, there Herman Chalupski, so Oscar's brother, was definitely one of the toughest. Um, and then if it was a a flatter race, then Lewis Laughlin from Tahiti was was very very good. Uh, obviously, the Australian guys like Tim Jacobs and Clint Robinson, Marty Kenny, Grant Kenny. You know, there's a whole host of people that you can you can put in a list there. But um, the Chalupskis and, and Lewis, and then that some of the Hawaiians themselves in Nalu Kukea was a very very good paddler, but but was constantly suffering from from shoulder injuries, which was a real shame because I think he. Him and uh, re- more recently Pat Dolan are the two that probably could have won the race for the homeland, you know, which hasn't been done since the race started. So that would have been pretty neat to see one of those guys get up on the top as well. So, um, but there's been so many, so many, so many really good South Africans, uh, so many really good Australian guys, and and then those two Hawaiian guys and other Hawaiian guys as well that have been always featuring in that top group. So. It's been it's been good. It's been a good period over there. It's um, you know, I remember the early days when I first started going over there. It was just such a, a great feel. We'd all stay, all the Australians would stay at the same hotel, and uh, you know, guys like Barry Ben 
and that was still doing a race then. And, you know, it's a shame he passed away recently. And, and uh, there was a really, really good crew of Aussies going over and doing the event. Now, back then, the, the skis weren't that, you know, they're, they're more the spec ski that, that used for surf life saving. And then gradually they changed a bit. Compared to the day what we ride, do you wish those the type of skis today were around when you were racing back then? I'm pretty proud of the way I went back then on a, a spec ski. I, I was fortunate to be able to hold the record for 24 years basically on a spec ski. But the thing is with runs, you don't need a faster ski in a lot of runs. Like a, a spec ski and an ocean racing ski, if the runs are good and solid, there won't be a huge amount of difference. It, it's it's when you get to the smaller stuff and the trickier stuff that the ocean skis are definitely way better. Uh, I think, you know, it's hard to put into numbers, um, minutes or seconds on how much faster you would have gone on an ocean ski, but I I would say there's at least 10 minutes in it between paddling a spec ski and an ocean ski in that, in, in, in that sort of three-and-a-half-hour race. So after doing all the Molokai races, did that put in your mind that you wanted to start organising racing? When did that start, your, your first one you organised? In the mid-90s, Leachy and Scott Wood and myself, I was sort of, the 20 beaches had been going, but it, it wasn't going that well. It was, the event had been losing money and Kayak Club was wearing the brunt of that, the Manu Ringa Kayak Club. So we, we met with a couple of members of the Kayak Club and said, you know, do you want us to run the 20 beaches? We'll try and, we'll try and make it more of a professional event and make it a really good ocean racing event and really get people involved. And, and, and those particular members said, yes, no problems. You guys take it over. We, we were just going to pay the Kayak Club a fee because they actually owned the rights to the event. As it got closer, for some reasons, the Kayak Club shut us down and said, no, you can't have the event. We're going to run it ourselves. And we went, okay, fair enough. So by that time, we'd already locked in Channel 9 on Wide World of Sport for five segments on a Saturday afternoon. And we'd gotten a major sponsor in United Telecommunications and uh, a couple others and and Sydney Water and, and to sponsor it. So we had really, really good prize money. We had we had the event on television, but now we'd lost the event. So we created our own and that was the King of the Harbour and the Palm of Pines. So we ran two races over consecutive weekends and we gave away $50,000. We had the events on television over consecutive weekends and, and uh, yeah, it was just, it was a, a huge success. So we're like happy days. Event management's so easy, <laughs> you know, like just pull all this together and, off it went, but the next year was a little bit more leaner and, and then the next year after that got lean, even more lean, so we, we stopped doing it. So that was like 96, 97, and then in 2001, I, I got together with Men's Health magazine and that's when the sport really started, was was then, and we had the Men's men's Health Ocean Racing Series and, and so on, and then the events evolved out of that. And, you know, I've been running the doctor since then and, and a lot of the events we still see today, so... The big thing with the events is history. If, if you can keep the event running through the lean times, then the history creates the prestige of the event. And you've done a great job in doing that over the years. But on the other hand, tell us about how tough it is behind the scenes to run a race, though, to organise a race. It must be that, you know, it's time-consuming. You've got people complaining about different things they want it run a different way, politics comes into it. Yeah, just tell us a bit about it. Yeah, so I, I knew a lot of that stuff going into into this. So I've always tried to keep it lean and I've tried to keep 
bureaucracy out of it. And I, I, I'm, I'm, I kind of think that the most successful way to run these things is almost like a dictatorship. And that might sound a bit rough to a lot of people, but when you've got boards and things like that deciding the future or the direction of a sport, you've got the, the number of opinions of people on that board that can, can sway it either way. And I don't necessarily think that's the best way to do it. I think that if, if one person's making the decisions, then it generally seems to, to work a lot better. It's not always going to be right, but, and I know that, you know, there's definitely decisions that we've made at Ocean Paddle that haven't been right in regards to the way the event should be run. But you try and learn from those and make sure the events are better. And I think we've been very fortunate that, you know, I think if I look back over the last 20 years at the events, I think, you know, we've probably had a pretty good success rate at, at the events. And I think one of the things that I think we can say is is part of that success is the fact that, you know, I like to do downwind. So, and I like to do the races that I'm organizing as well if I can. So, I don't want to put the race, I don't want to do a crappy race just because it's easier. I'd rather make the race harder on us as the event organizers to make sure that everyone has fun. So, and at the end of the day, if everyone's coming out of a downwind rather than a headwind race, you're going to see 90% of the smiles. If it's a headwind race, you're going to see 10% of smiles. So, and I think that's always been our initiative. And just to, just to keep it really, really lean and streamlined and and not involve too many people because once you involve too many people, there's too many opinions. So, and keep the, we've, we've always kept the organisations out of it. We've always made sure that we've, we organise our own insurance. We try and make sure that we pay everyone. So we've got reliable people helping the event. And, you know, that's worked to our detriment financially over the years because the events haven't been a thing that makes money for us. They're definitely a thing that we've lost money on. And even to date, we're probably still well down on, on you know, if you looked at it financially on what, on what an event organiser would want from an event. But, you know, at the end of the day, the sport's grown. Um, there's a lot of people benefiting, benefiting from that. And uh, I'm, I'm happy because I love this. I love the sport. I love being out on the ocean. I love, I love it at the end of the doctor when, you know, uh, if we've got 500 in the field, 490 of them have had the best time of their life and 10 haven't, well, that's a pretty good success rate. I remember one event, it was at St Kilda in, in Melbourne that we're putting on for men's health and it was a, a ripping westerly straight across the bay. It was it would have been like eight degrees, rain, everything. Uh, there was 14 people on the line for the uh, ski race. And uh, I just thought, why are we doing this? What a waste of time. But uh, I guess every little thing like that sort of contributes to uh, the, the success of the sport at some point, you know, out of that, out of that 14 people that were on the line, you know, they might have said, well, actually, it wasn't too bad. We went out and back. We caught some runs and it wasn't too bad. So next next time we do it down there, we have 18 people on the line. So it's, uh, it's uh, you know, and that, that's, been the, that's been the case uh, since we started. The, the first doctor we had, we probably had 35 people in it. Uh, and then we started, we had my 
cousins and my brother-in-law's cray boats and we used to fill those up so we'd have 60 or 70 skis going over to Rottnest on nose and then we got to a point where we needed more cray boats or we got to the point where all the ferries were booked and then we got to the point where we started using the barge and and so we've seen the growth and that I think sort of inspires you a little bit too when every year you've had a little bit sometimes only a little bit of growth sometimes a big step up in growth so but it's always been growth you know we've never seen years go backwards so I guess that's really important at the end of the day so it's amazing how many people are paddling now that you see every years ago if you saw a ski on a car it'd be yeah once every blue moon but now you're just seeing every traffic light. There's a ocean ski on a car. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's definitely getting better. Oh, absolutely. And there's, you know, there's some some good groups around it, around Sydney. There's some good groups in Brisbane and Gold Coast and down in Melbourne. And it's fantastic that all these people are getting into the sport. And I think the manufacturers have have done very, very well in in building craft that are more accessible to people. So the perception when I first started doing this stuff was that you needed to be a you know a, a champion surf lifesaving competitor to sit on one of the things, and that was probably almost the case too. But it's changed a lot since then, where anyone can get in and, and pretty well sit on a surf ski and go for a paddle if 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 the surf ski is fat enough and and stable enough for them to do it, which has a bit of a detrimental side too, in that some people probably aren't ready for a doctor style race but believe they are and they can put themselves in in an element of danger. So I guess the, the safety equipment is very, very important and we try and promote that as much as we can. And it is good with the safety equipment because everyone pretty much you know wears a life jacket now. I remember back in the day, no one ever wore a life jacket. You probably got bagged if, if you did put one on. But these days, you know, everyone's out there paddling in it. So the safety element is a lot better. Oh, 100%. Like I'd do Molokai and a pair of sluggos and a, a drink bottle between my legs, you know. That was my that was my hydration. And uh, you'd come off the race and you'd burn to a crisp. But, you know, that was what that was just the way we did it then. And Grant, Marty and myself who did a lot of those early Molokais, Brad Kane and uh, Lats Rollings and, and stuff, we'd, we'd all be standing around that night going, oh, how sunburned are we? <laughs> We're just idiots. We wouldn't even wear a rat We could barely talk. The lips were so chafed, and and then we'd just be complaining about how sunburnt we were. But but uh, it was it was you know that was just the, the way it was back then. But now yeah you're right. So you know the important things are a, a leash and a uh, a PFD, and if you've got those things on you, you're pretty covered. You know, so you're, you're going to be able to 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 float. You're going to be able to stay connected to your craft, which is really important. So tell us now about the you're running events and it was all going along. You had your lean years, you had your good years. Then Shore and Partners came along. Now, did you think you had the vision that where you wanted to be with the sport, which is pretty much getting there now? Did you believe though that this sponsorship could take it to the next level at when you first came involved with Shore and Partners? Yeah. So to be quite honest, I was probably uh, we'd stopped going out to chase sponsorship because it. It's too much work. You spend too much energy doing it. So we were just running the events basically off the revenue that the events created. We have had very, very good support from a couple of people since we started. And Fen is obviously one of those. But the other one was was 
Thorst, which were good mates of mine, the Bird Brothers from, from WA, and their company, Paramount Safety Products. They, they got on board right at the start and they've helped us pretty well the whole way through as well. And, and then we've had sponsors intermittently over time that have given us money here and there. And, and then we've had sponsors that have promised to give us money and, and they never did. So we've, you know, gone down a hole a couple of years there where we were supposed to get a certain amount of money off different sponsors and they never, never fronted with it. So I was on the beach at Molokai, you know, six years ago and Earl from Shore and Partners sponsor, it was just another sponsor that had come along and said, I want to sponsor your events. And I'm like, I, I was pretty cynical about people coming up to me and saying, I want to sponsor your event. I'd been down the path where, oh, yeah, we'll give you this, this, this and this. And when it came to the event season starting, oh, no, we'll just give you a hat. <laughs> you know, like it was, we'll give you a couple of hats, you know, to wear. And uh, so just got to a point where I was very cynical about sponsorship. Earl came up to me on the beach at, at Molokai and said, oh, I'd love to sponsor your event. I went, yeah, okay, no worries, great. He said, get in touch with me when we get back to Sydney and, and uh, we'll talk about it. So I, ne- I, I got back to Sydney and I, I never followed up because I'd done that a million times already. And so Earl actually, thank you to his credit, followed me up and, and it's been, you know, they came on in a small way initially and then it's just grown every year. And, and if you know Earl, he likes to do things big, you know. So if there's a Liberace in the paddling world, Earl's it. So everything's... Uh, Everything's big and everything's a lot better. And but the generosity and the support is what you see on at the events is is just the tip of the iceberg. And there's a there's a lot of people benefiting from Shrine Partners, uh, Earl Evans and Alan Zeon's contribution to this sport, and and we're forever grateful for that. And and um, I think a lot of people should be, even those that aren't that aren't winning the prize money at the front end of the field. There's so much, there's so much benefit that everyone gets that because these guys are involved and it, it definitely, it definitely helps the exposure of the event. It definitely helps the athletes stay focused on doing these events. And um, it makes it just that little bit easier and harder for us to run the events. So it's, it's good though, man. It's all positive. And you were saying with the doctor, and you are over there in WA now in Perth because the doctor is coming up over the next week or so, and there's a, a whole lot of races. There's a whole race week that Shore and Partners are putting on. So yeah, tell us a bit about the race week. Yeah, so the race week came from we, – we'd had a couple of events midweek and the weekend before in the Fen West Coast downwind and the Triple S events, the Ben Hewitt Triple, event, Triple S events out of City Beach. So – Earl and I were actually at Hood River and that's a whole week of, of downwinding and fun over there in, in Oregon. And uh, we said, why don't we just create the same thing in Perth? And sure enough, so it just sort of grown from there. So we, we had the, the bones were in place, if you like, and then it was just a matter of putting the flesh around it. And now it's got tons of flesh around. It's actually quite a big fatty. So it's turning into a, a, a fantastic event. And I think, you know, we're sort of pretty committed to keep it going. You know, I think I'm just about at the end of of being able to manage this event myself and with Yander and and our team at Ocean Paddler. It 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 feels like it's getting to a point where proper event people need to do it. But we'll keep going as long as we can, and and uh, you know we get great support from from obviously Sean Partners Earl and Alan, and also uh, Brittany who works 
in there as well is just absolutely fantastic. So um, a lot of the stuff gets just gets done, and, and you're just like, wow, how did that happen? But it's all, all the fluffy stuff, and I've always I've always said to Earl that I'll, I'll run the event. You you do the fluffy stuff, and and uh, he's very very good at the fluffy stuff, and I just try and be the best i can at running the event so it and it seems to be working pretty well i believe this week will you know looking at the weather now it looks like it's going to shape up pretty nicely so far so yeah i mean it's 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 a great week and it's you know you had a cut off at 500 for the for the doctor for this year what is there potential to get bigger or or that's the limit you, you won't be able to go any bigger than that no, there's definitely definitely potential to go bigger. Uh, the reason we set the 500 cutoff was because we didn't want people entering and then calling us a week out from the event asking how they're going to get their ski to Rottnest. So we we based the 500 on what capacity we have on the barge, and what we believe people could how people could get their own boats to Rottnest. So. Yeah, and even even now we're getting those calls from people that actually entered but didn't book the book the barge when they had the opportunity, and now they're saying how they're going to get their boat to Rottnest because obviously that's the toughest logistical problem this race has is getting your boat over there. So, and there's tons of ways to do it, and we're ho- and we've found that people are are being a little bit being really good with that and actually finding finding uh, ways to using charter boats, uh, the ferries and different methods. Some people are even taking their skis over the day before on the ferry, putting it on the beach and then coming back and then going back over. So there's, there's ways to do it. I think either it's good or bad, but we, um, we made it very, very easy for people by giving them the barge option early. And I think that took a little bit of the drive out of people actually finding a way to get their ski over there. So but a lot of people are doing it, and a lot of groups have charter boats booked and things like that. So it's starting to it's starting to work out. So my advice in the future is get early, get in early, and try and book a charter boat for a group of fifteen or twenty of you, and and uh, get your skis over there yourself. Then you can leave when you want. You can get your skis dropped over there. You don't have to do the barge load on the Friday because everyone whinges about the barge load on the Friday, and uh, it's a long day for them but it's a longer day for us who are the people tying all their skis on so find a way to, to get your ski over there most west australian people should know someone with a boat get your ski over there that way mate with the doctor have you got one tip on who, who could potentially win it or the internationals will be down paddling uh this year is there a standout yeah yeah i think i think uh we're very fortunate we're going to see i believe i believe in in the men's there's probably six or seven guys that have the ability to win this race. And I think in the women's, there's three or four that have the ability to win the race. So it's going to be very, very interesting. In the real category, though, Hopper, the over 50s, you know, there's there's obviously it's the most competitive one. It's the biggest field. Uh, that's that's the real event. So uh, there's a number of guys that can win that one too. Yeah, I know, but it's the most competitive. I keep turning up hoping you guys will just keep, drop off, but you never do. You keep, you keep turning up. <laughs> I'm, 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 I think I'm the first to go over the waterfall into the 60s thing. So, mate, you're still up there in the uh, in the open. So, the, the 60s have got no hope. <laughs> <laughs> well, mate, you've also started up, you know, Ocean Paddler, and you, you, you take a lot of groups, and you've also now got Manly Paddle Club. So, for people out there wanting to start and get into paddling, what's your advice? 
Yeah, I, I would. Um, so Mitchell Trim and I started Manly Paddle Club, and and it was just to to get people into like I'm, I'm passionate about ocean paddling. When quite often when people learn to paddle, they learn to paddle in in a flat water environment, and they learn all that flat water stuff. And I think there's a big difference between learning learning to paddle in a flat water mode, like a, a K1 sort of mode, and learning to paddle a ski. I believe the strokes are very different and the mindset's very different as well. So, yeah, so we started Manly Paddle Club to, to get more people into the sport. Obviously, there's a lot of people that live in Manly that can't store a ski because there's a lot of apartments and things like that there. So the option there is to come down and use one of ours and and get them out. And, and given that Manly's pretty close to the entrance to the heads, we can get them in some bouncy stuff pretty early if they're capable of doing that. And then we want to take people all the way through to the point where they're actually coming over and doing these races. So our goal is to teach people how to paddle in the ocean and learn all those little little things that both Trimmy and I know a little bit about and, and uh, try and give them a shortcut into getting out here and doing this race. Well, mate, also I do a bit of paddling with you, you, you your sessions that you do. And I just want to ask the question, you always give the session and then – you get some guys will be off on their own, you know, going the wrong way. And I just, how frustrating does that get for you? Yeah, you see it in races all the time. <laughs> so if there's not a set start line, we saw this in the 20 Beaches debacle about six years ago where there wasn't a set start line. So people just kept paddling out to sea. Uh, it's very frustrating. You, you tell people to stop paddling, but they just keep paddling. And uh, I see it when we do downwinds. It's the most frustrating thing when I do downwinds is people believe the further you paddle out to sea, the better run you're going to have to the destination. But uh, all you're doing if you're paddling out to sea is teaching yourself to get washed into the shore so that you're not teaching yourself how to ride runs. Runs are about taking off, cutting back, cutting across, moving, moving through the water. They're not just about going straight down the face of a wave. So... Uh, it, it is very frustrating, but we try and teach that on our trips and, and when we do that sort of thing. But there's always there's always one, and we'll see it in the doctor. And, and uh, we saw it at Bondi the other week when I gave the race briefing. I, I said that, you know, one of you here are going to end up on the rocks, and they all laughed and, and stuff like that. But sure enough, three people ended up on the rocks that, that event. And uh, you just see it. It's just, it's just a natural thing, and, and people tend to – to be a bit of a sheep when it comes to to the paddling and they just follow the person that's in front but i can tell you just just stop for a second have a look around and you, you might actually find a, a better way to do it and also with catching runs do you think it's a, a feel for it or you're looking for the runs both yeah so you can actually feel it happening and you can actually see it happening as well so and for the really good guys they can see it happening well in advance kind of like a a, a, a three move chess move, you know, so you can see it, you can see what's going to develop in front. Anything that's significantly higher or lower than the, the mean plane of the ocean is going to create something that the the ski can fall into. So uh, if you start thinking like that and it's not just one dimensional from the same way the wind's blowing, then you start looking for the, the other things that are happening on the water as well. And is it keeping the speed as well, but not getting stuck in that trough and really slowing up and trying to rate up again because it takes that bit more energy? Yeah, two things is direction and speed. So you want to be moving like a surfer. You don't see a surfer gently stroke into a wave when he's about to take off. He's going frantically 
paddling into a wave to catch it. So you need to be moving through the water to be able to catch the wave. So that's 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 key. And it's also the direction your boat's pointing to. So if you can get it as 90 degrees to the to the angle of, of the wave as possible, then there's more chance of catching it because there's less resistance. Well, uh, mate, it's been a, a it's great having you in the beach shack. It's uh good talking paddle stuff. You know, I'm I'm pretty passionate about paddling myself and enjoy getting out there and, and, and paddling with you as well. And also racing against you, it's uh it's always good fun. Now, mate, at the end I do my five fun facts. So I'm going to yep. throw some questions at you and uh, you can answer them however you want. Favourite takeaway food? I'd, I'd have to say sushi, I guess. Uh, yeah, that would be my favourite for sure. I probably eat that four or five times a week. Favourite childhood memory? Favourite childhood memory is a West Australian thing and that was every school holidays I would go down to Denmark, which is in the southwest of WA. That was where my dad was born and, and we used to go down there and, and the beaches down there are sensational, fishing and all that sort of stuff. What's your favourite drink before a paddle? Coffee and water, simple as that. I don't believe in anything else, so I think they're the two, two key ingredients. Uh, the best thing about Perth? Is the climate. I love the, uh, the Mediterranean-type climate, very dry. It's, it's not humid, so if it's a very, very hot day, you just sit under a tree. It's nice. If you're a DJ, what would your DJ name be? Well, my name would have to be Chop because it's always been Chop from the time I was five years old. So uh, I'd be DJ Chop. DJ Chop sounds very, very good. <laughs> <laughs> well, mate, Dino, it's great having you in, mate, and, and having a chat. And, and good luck with the, the doctor and uh, the uh, week coming up with Shore and Partners. And, uh, and good luck in the races. I'm sure you'll get out there and, and, and have a few races. I hope to, yeah. Thanks, Hoppo. Now let's go to Beach Banner. Okay, back in the Beach Shack, it's Reedy. How are you, mate? I'm good, Hop. Good to be back. Mate, uh, you know, we do a lot of rescues and a lot of major ones and a lot of people that are critical. And there was a time that you were involved and you've got this story about Ryan Kim, the rescue, when uh, you were on the beach that day. I was, yeah, yeah. It's probably one of um. It was a. It wasn't probably. I mean, when you when you watch the episode back on Bondi Rescue, it it probably looked like a little bit of a confusing recess. But I guess for us, we kind of knew what we were doing at the time. We just had a lot of other distractions that made it look a little bit confusing. But I'll sort of go from start to finish and try not to drag it out too long. But basically, we had a really busy day. It was probably solid, you know, four to six foot swell running. Still had flags up, but it was really nice and clean, the conditions. So plenty of people down there, 30 degree day, everyone wants to swim. So two sets of flags. And on those sorts of days, we had the jet ski in the water. The jet ski is just so versatile that it can get to places really quickly when there's a little bit of swell and when we can't probably get out as quickly on the board if you have if you have a situation like what happened. And, you know, having the ski in the water that day, I'm 110% sure that that saved that, that guy. Ryan is his name, Ryan Kim's life. Yeah. I, it was my turn to change over. Normally when we change over on the jet ski, the person that's about to jump on, he will walk walk down in front of the tower but before he leaves the tower he'll tell the guy in the tower to radio the jet ski and let him know that you're that I'm going to be down there and it was Maxie I think on the ski at the time 
and said, oh, Reedy's waiting down there to change over. Come, come, to the, come to the middle of the beach when you're ready. So I'm down there standing there like no radio and suddenly the buggy from south comes past me doing about 70K an hour. <laughs> I'm just like, what the, where, the, where is that thing going? And just as I look down the beach to see where that thing was going, I see the jet, and the reason I couldn't see the jet ski originally because the, the 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 flags were so busy, and I was on the southern side of the flags, and he the jet ski was bringing the patient in on the other side, and obviously no radio, no transmission. I had no idea what was going on, and I just see the jet ski coming in with what what I thought was this really interesting looking man on the back, which ended up being Matt Calhoun, who's a you worked with him as a lifeguard for a long time. I did a couple of seasons with him before he retired, but legend of a human. He just happened to be swimming out the back and just found this human, Ryan Kim, under the water and dead. And so yeah. he's like, bought him up, called for the jet ski. Jet ski's come, Maxi's come in, they've thrown him on the back. I mean, a lot of things came together that day for that guy. Like, you know, the fact that it was Matthew Calhoun that was there that helped get him on the jet ski because he's a lifeguard, knew what to do. Maxie, quick thinking, quickly took him straight into the beach. He'd obviously radioed the beach. That's why the boys went flying past me and I looked down and I just see this dead guy being dragged off the jet ski. So I, good 200 metre run down the beach, sprint down there and we we make the call. to they, they, they sort of started working on him where it wasn't quite past the high tide line. So we dragged him up the beach and we started working on him. I think you learn something from every resus and this resus, I learned that we probably should have rolled the patient a little bit earlier. He'd taken in a lot of water. But in saying that, we still did a what I believe was a, was a good enough job to, to get him back, which was some really good compressions by Chapo yeah. and just some, just some really good teamwork, I think. The other interesting thing with that resus was at the time, we get a lot of members of the public trying to trying to either help out or, you know, just be a part of it. And, and sometimes it can be a help and other times it can be a hindrance. And at this time, we had an anaesthetist who was asking us for all these pieces of equipment while we were trying to work on this guy. And I think we I think we'd put it I think I'd put a Goodell in, I can't remember. But he was asking for all these other different airways. And, you know, in that situation, you never want to say to someone with a higher medical degree than you to go away but we're only trained in the equipment that we have to use and that's all we had down there so it got to a point where i ended up having to kind of shove him and say mate we need you to move away we need to work on this guy the best that we know how and in the end we because it's our job down there we need to we need to to sort of take control and so we did in the end and and we got him back it probably wasn't as seamless Looking back on it in hindsight, as as I would have liked it, and probably you know some of the other guys would have liked it because there was probably a little bit of yelling and a little bit of drama. But hey, it made for good TV, and we got him back, and and it was a it was a pretty special experience. And the great thing about it was we work with a paramedic who does all our training, and we got to do a debrief with him, and and uh, and they surprised us with Ryan turning up at the debrief three days later, completely fine. So. It was cool to see a dead man walking again and it was good to like be able to watch that recess back over and then pick apart our faults, I guess, and see what we did right and see what we did wrong. And I think when we have the luxury of that, we can learn a lot as lifeguards and become better lifeguards and, you know, use better techniques and, and stuff like that. So it was, a, it was a good successful recess. I was stoked to be a part of it with a good team, as a Graham, Maxie, Chapo. I can't remember who else. 
I think there was one more there. Sounds like Karen's home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll make sure she listens to this one. <laughs> I love that. Uh, that's Cuba having a bark up there. He thinks he's a guard dog. Mate, he's um, he's, a, he's the mascot for the show, isn't he? He's usually in the shack. Yeah. yeah, he's usually running around the shack, mate. I didn't want him to come in today. I'm a bit allergic to dogs, but <laughs> no. Nah, look, it's it, like I, I think I think being a lifeguard on Bondi, the fortunate thing about it is, and you'd know you're like a relic down there. You know, you're like that old anchor under the sea. <laughs> you, you, you're lucky enough to learn. You get so much experience just in one year working at Bondi, let alone fifteen or twenty. So. Yeah. Uh, I'm lucky enough to carry those skills and still be doing it both here and up here at Lake Macquarie. So it's it's good. Well, mate, it's a good job. Got the person back. That's the main thing. The main aim is to make sure they, uh, as you said, come down and see you <laughs> after you've resuscitated them. Yeah, yeah, even though he probably had a, some sore ribs because, as we know, breaking <laughs> ribs is a good thing. It means that we're getting to the heart and we're pumping it. So... But, you know, most drowning patients are already in a Sicily. It's just that good CPR that'll help restart the heart. And I don't, I don't think, I think we put the pads on, but I don't think it shocked him. I think it was just good CPR, which is, which is, um, which is what helps. But, you know, we learn something new from every resus. I think that double resus, which I don't know if you've spoken to the boys about on the show yet with the, um, with the, the, the yeah. two Norwegians and the, and the, the one thing they took away from that was they, they kept the patient on the board and they did the CPR on the board and having that, that hard structure underneath the patient meant for better compressions, which is probably what helped get them back. And that's, you know, that's just us getting better and better at what we do, which is good. And it's lucky for us that we've got that footage as well. Like you said, you can sit down, go through it all, whereas normally you can't even remember, you know, what you've done until you sit down and watch it again. Yeah, it's like a blur. I remember, you, I think you've had Candice on the show and, and uh, you know, that was my first resus. I did that with you. That was probably your 358th resus. I think it was your, <laughs> I think it was your 60th year on the beach. So. Yeah, it was about that. <laughs> but, you know, I was like, uh, I was it? <laughs> I remember World War Two, mate. <laughs> well, I don't, doesn't surprise me. I reckon you're around uh, for World War One. <laughs> my, hel- my helmet's starting to wear away. <laughs> you're, uh, the, the year you were born has a BC next to it before Christ. <laughs> but yeah, no, I remember that that recess with Candace. That was my first one, and I I remember I kept dropping the Goodell airway in the sand every time she'd vomit and. And I'd drop it and I'd have to keep running down to wash it out. And you, it's funny how you you grow and you learn from experience. And it's, um, yeah, it's good fun. Yeah. Mate, uh, great stories. And uh, thanks for coming into the beach shack. And I'll see you down the beach. Thanks for having me. Now it's time to have a listen to the fans in the mailbag. This week's letter in the mailbag is from Jacinta and she is from New South Wales. I hear Kerbox is getting married. Are you invited to the wedding? Well, Jacinta, yes, uh, I am invited to the wedding. I'm on the uh, the bridal party, so it should be a, a magnificent day. Uh, Kerbox always puts on a, a great display and a great party in the past, so I'm assuming the wedding will be no different. So thanks uh, for your letter, and I'll uh, update you uh, after the wedding and uh, let everyone know how it went. So until then, uh, have a great week and uh, I'll catch you all next week. Thanks everyone for listening. Remember to subscribe to Life's a Beach wherever you get your podcasts. 
and hit us up with questions, comments, or follow us on our social media channels, which you can find in our show notes. That's it for today, Beach fans. Stay safe and swim between the flags.